Today's reading is from Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 32, and you'll find that in the Bibles in front of you on page 1126. I'll just give you a minute to find it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what, what, um, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the worlds, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and the birds and the animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things, rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not know, just did not think it was worthwhile to retain knowledge of God, So God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what they ought not to have done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, welcome to you folks uh, watching along at home. Good to have you with us. Uh, If you keep your Bibles open at Romans chapter 1, that'll be very helpful. These are challenging words, I reckon. And uh, we need to pray for one another as we begin that we would have both hearts and minds ready to give ourselves to them. So let's pray and then we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Romans and these words before us today are challenging. They challenge our minds and our hearts. So help us to give both our minds and our hearts to them that we might increasingly resemble the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wonder how you view yourself as a human being. Sometimes I get the boys in our growth group 
to score their week as if it were a school report card. Um, so uh, maybe they've had an A-plus kind of week, uh, or sometimes they will have had a C-minus kind of week, you know, not that flash. But what if you were to give your life a score? How would you rate yourself? A, a wee while ago, they released results of a survey of students in schools. Uh, get this, 96% of students thought they were in the top 50% academically. I thought that was startling. You're um, not alive. Okay, no worries, let's roll with that. 20% thought they were in the top 1% academically. Students always thought of themselves as better than they really were. And of course, it's not limited to school students, is it? Our culture encourages us to think of ourselves as good through and through and mostly getting better. Nobody's perfect, mind you, but we're mostly getting better. But is that actually true? If you were to do a data dump of not only your outward actions and words, but your internal thoughts and motives, would that prove accurate? Would you really be an A minus? The next three chapters of Romans will make an incisive argument that we are not good and through and through and mostly getting better. We are all, whether we're irreligious, depraved pagans, whether we're uprightly moral Gentiles, whether we're religiously devout Jews, we all fall short of God's glory. No matter which category you find yourself in, decadent and debauched, morally upright and probably uptight, or religiously devout, we are all in peril. More importantly, I want to say, this is reason to be hopeful. We will see today that humanity in its natural state faces the judgment of God and we are universally without excuse. So what I'm really saying is we're all stuffed, we've got no excuse, and yet there's reason to be optimistic. How can this possibly be? Well, you'll have to listen in carefully to this second instalment in our series in Romans, which is the Apostle Paul's great explanation of the gospel, which he hoped would unify the diverse Christians in Rome. Well, friends, let's get into things. Firstly, we need to see as a rule, humanity has suppressed plain truths about God. The Apostle Paul, who remember is Jesus' official spokesman, focuses here on irreligious, immoral, pagan depravity. In the next chapter, he will have morally upright Gentiles in mind. The chapter after that, he will have religiously devout Jews in mind. But all three groups are in a uh, naturally perilous state before God. And specifically today, he says, pagan humanity has suppressed plain truths about God. There is a plain truth suppressed, and that attracts the judgment of God. So let's read the opening verses. I'd love it if you could read it with me from verse 18. The wrath of God, says the Apostle Paul, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known to them about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Well, don't hold back, Paul. It doesn't feel like you guys are alive today. Are you awake? Do we need to do some Pilates or something? You're, you're with me? Thank you very much. Okay, we'll get straight to it. Why is God angry? Why is his wrath being revealed? Well, Paul says because godless people suppress the truth by their wickedness. But of course, what truth do they suppress? Well, it's the truth there 
that God is the creator of all things. And verse 19 says, he has made this plain to us. Verse 20 makes it even plainer. God's invisibility, invisible qualities like his power, his divinity, his eternity are obvious in the created world around us, but we naturally reject it and suppress it. Now just pile up the phrases from verses 19 to 20 with me. God has made it plain. These have been clearly seen. It is understood from what has been made. People are without excuse. So what should be an obvious opportunity to acknowledge that God is the creator is rejected? And friends, I don't think there are many places in the whole wide world where God's divine nature and eternal power are more obvious than here in Manly. If you have ever watched the sunrise over South Stain, if you have ever like snorkeled or swum across Cabbage Tree Bay, if you have ever sat out the back of Bower or Winky or Dead Man's, you've seen it. We know God. We know enough to know that he's there and that he's amazing. But humans suppress that truth, rejecting it, in a way that Paul says leaves us without excuse. We cannot say, oh, I had no idea. But to make matters even worse, there's not only a plain truth suppressed, there is also a godly glory exchanged. That is to say, we not only reject the truth that God is creator and we are mere creatures and that we might have some responsibility to him, we also exchange his glory in preference of worshipping idols created by our own hands. The plain truth is suppressed and then God's glory is exchanged. So let's read on verse 21. It's very important that you read along with me. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. In actual point of fact, verse 25 says it in in an even more succinct way. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is to be forever praised. Do you understand what he's saying? We know enough about God, but we rejected the truth about him, and yet this does not make us any less a worshipping group of people. For as humans, we all worship something. They exchanged the worship of the eternal, divine, powerful, creator God for the worship of created things, whether that was things their hands had made or the creation itself. They became idolaters and leaned deeply into their idolatry. Of course, some 2,000 years later, so advanced um, we are as a people, us manly people would never be so stupid as to worship things made out of stone and wood and paint and print, would we? We are obsessed with property, are we not? We'd never be so basic is to lay down our devotion, to orient our energies, to give our great affections to material objects, would we? We can't even put these things down. Maybe, maybe not, right? But you have to admit that we all still worship created things. I mean, every time you hear somebody say something like, well, the ocean is my cathedral, or being in nature is my spiritual practice, friends, that is kind of garden variety idolatry it's suppressing the truth about God it's exchanging his glory and worshiping created things rather than creator the sunrise is achingly beautiful is it not 
the eagle rays and the blue gropers and the cuttlefish in Cabbage Street Bay. The cuttlefish is my wife Carolyn's favourite. I think it reminds her of me. <laughs> they're, they're wondrously beguiling, aren't they? So intriguing and delightful. But they're all created things rather than the creator who is the one who deserves praise forever. And so we discover that the Apostle Paul in this chapter written so long ago has zeroed in upon a surprisingly local phenomenon to us here in Manly. He has described our idolatry idolatry to a T. It's as if he's been staying at the backpackers just off the corso. Now, unfortunately, our native idolatry, in which we so readily swap our devotion and our worship from the creator to created things, good things, right, whether it's people, places, objects, is not the only exchange that takes place. It's not the only one. Quite a few Christmases ago, we bought our son, one of our sons, a remote control helicopter. looks exactly like that. Uh, And after we charged up the batteries, uh, it took a little time to get the hang of flying it, but once we did, he had a lot of fun with it. And so did I after he went to bed each evening, at least for the first three days after Christmas, but then the battery stopped working. And we took it back to the toy store, explained what happened, and they gave us another battery. And then we had some more fun with the helicopter for the next three days, again, until it stopped working once more. So for the second time, like parents, you understand this, right? Second time in the week after Christmas, we packaged up the helicopter, grabbed the receipt, and went back to the store. I did not want another battery that would stop working in three days. I wanted a brand new helicopter or my money back. Here's the thing, I don't enjoy confrontation and I really have to G myself up for it. So I found myself preparing arguments while I was waiting in the line. I'm about to be served and I realized that I've subconsciously assumed the classic boxing stance, you know, with the weight on my front foot, knee slightly bent up on the ball of my back foot as if I was poised to strike and thinking, what is wrong with you, you ridiculous little man? We're in a toy store. When I get to the counter, I talk to the assistant. He gives me the choice of a replacement or a refund right away. There's no argument. There's no confrontation. There's no fight required. It's totally unexpected. And I was wondering why it was so easy and then I looked behind the counter and I saw seven or eight of the exact same helicopters stacked in their boxes, one on top of the other, all of them broken. Every single one broken. Now as we go through this passage, and you would have picked up on it during the reading, the Apostle Paul will describe homosexual practice, not attraction or um, orientation per se, but but homosexual practice as unnatural. I'm sure you heard it. It's something you dare not utter loud in our culture for all sorts of understandable reasons. And we'll need to carefully consider those verses, mindful that this is the word of God to us, even when we find it challenging, especially when we find it challenging. But before we get to those verses, we need to accept that as human beings, we are exactly like that stack of helicopters, all of us broken, every single one. Broken in our sexuality, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, sure. But even more, we are broken in our humanity, every single one of us. We've already considered the idolatry that the Apostle Paul first mentions, and we've seen it as a very modern, manly kind of phenomenon. This second exchange involves immorality. 
And well before he mentions homosexual immorality, he addresses heterosexual immorality in verses 24 and 26. So read along with me. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And he's got straight uh, sexual impurity in mind there. Verse 26, God gave them over to presumably heterosexual shameful lusts. So before we get to the verses that are scandalous to us one way or the other, the apostle has laid the charge against heterosexual immorality, that is any kind of sexual activity or even fantasy not shared between a man and a woman united in a lifelong covenant of marriage. So yes, it includes adultery in which a married spouse sleeps with someone to whom they're not married. It includes premarital sex where boyfriends and girlfriends are sleeping together even when we're not talking about teenagers but people who are older and maturer. It includes pornography and any lustful fantasy outside the bonds of marriage, but even within marriage, it could include the taking of sexual pleasure selfishly from a spouse or withholding intimacy from a spouse when it ought to be offered. It all counts. And you remember it was the Lord Jesus himself who says what you do in your mind matters as well as what you do with your body. Now, you need to notice that this passage is a general description about sinful humanity. It's not addressed to Christian believers. Paul's going to get there in the next two chapters. You will have also noticed that there are no commands in this passage. Right? There's no instructions for us. But I want to say, Christian people, you cannot read this passage without acknowledging that there are behaviours and attitudes that displease God and incur his rightful wrath if left unattended. I want every single person who comes to St. Matthews to know that they are created in God's image and that they are therefore of precious worth to him. That is most important. It's most important, more important than knowing the Bible's sexual ethic. But having known that you are made and loved by God, you cannot ignore his vision for sexual intimacy and faithfulness. So, friends, I need to say, if you're engaged in heterosexual immorality, as a Christian person, you need to stop, and you need to stop right now. And that might mean you need to break off a relationship. It might mean you need to move out of home. It might mean you need to get married. It might mean you need to take very serious steps to control the fantasies in your mind. And I suspect that might mean you need help in doing that. Well, of course, of course, we want to be a community that helps each other in these ways and which loves one another deeply. Again, before we move on to the homosexual stuff, for which Christians are caricatured as anti-gay, I want you to see that the Apostle Paul highlights a whole bunch of other behaviours that are contrary to God's will for our lives. It's not just that God doesn't tolerate gay sex or even um, heterosexual immorality. He's got a problem with so much of our human behavior. Like have a look at verse 29. Every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. He describes humanity there as full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. Scribing us as people who slander each other, hate God, disobey their parents, invent ways of doing evil and are without understanding, without love and without mercy. He's just saying it all counts. It all counts. But then we come to the, the part that you might be most interested in this morning, what the passage says about homosexuality in verses 26 and 27. I've already seen the Bible does not treat homosexual practice as a worse kind of sin. It's not like he gives a hall pass to heterosexual immorality. He's discussed that both before and after he mentions homosexuality. 
Indeed, this passage doesn't depict sexual immorality of any description as more sinister than a range of other sinful practices, behaviours and attitudes, including idolatry, envy, violence, greed, slander, arrogance, gossip. He's just saying it all counts. Furthermore, you need to notice carefully the Apostle Paul mentions unnatural relations and indecent acts. That is, he appears to be zeroing in upon homosexual practice in these verses when lusts are acted upon rather than homosexual orientation per se. Now you might go, gee, that's a technicality, Scott. Especially in our culture where there is great pressure to endorse just about everything But that does reveal that folks with same-sex orientation are not outside the orbit of God's saving grace any more than any other group of people. And it does mean that we can support people who find themselves same-sex attracted. This might be you this morning and who want to follow Jesus, not by endorsing every aspect of gay and lesbian lifestyle, nor by trying to cure them in peculiar ways. Surely it's about caring for brothers and sisters rather than curing them. And so I guess I want to say, it's not simple, but it's not impossible to embrace people who find themselves in that situation in a way that is coherent and compassionate, that's neither mean nor dumb, but that also stays true to the the Bible's sexual ethic. I'm not saying it's simple, I'm just saying it's possible, but it's more nuanced than a three-word slogan like love is love or just say no. Of course, the Christian church has not always been terrific at embracing and supporting these brothers and sisters. We haven't. All I'm saying is that it's possible and it's worth giving ourselves to. And though there is much more to say, uh, that will have to wait for another day, I think. Nevertheless, having said all that, I don't think you can read the Bible or even this passage without concluding that God is not okay with homosexual practice. It's described here as unnatural, which means against his created order of things. And whilst some people, perhaps older people in our fellowship, might find the idea of homosexual sex to be scandalous, the real scandal in our culture, perhaps especially among the younger members of our fellowship, is to criticise homosexuality in any way. To say anything negative really is the cardinal vice in our culture. And so these words are they are challenging for us to hear and accept. Just as the description of heterosexual immorality should be challenging for us to hear and accept. Just as the description of the vast range of vices here should be challenging for us to hear and accept. Because it all counts. It's all serious. And it all incurs the judgment of God. In fact, one of the surprises in this passage, and it's not a happy surprise, is not only that the rejection of God and our native depravity incurs a final judgment, One of the surprises is that a present judgment is issued as well. A present judgment is issued. Now, way down at the end, verse 32, the Apostle Paul hints at the idea of final judgment by saying that those who practice all the evil that he's described deserve death. But the surprising focus in this passage is the present judgment. Did you notice when we read out verse 18, it talks in the present tense about God's judgment being revealed from heaven. In other words, he's saying it's happening right now. And you think, how can that be? We don't see flashes of fire from heaven. Don't come across people getting zapped on the streets. But the clue is in the repetition of that phrase, God gave them over in verses 24, 26, 28. 
God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to shameful lusts. God gave them over to depraved minds. And you wonder, how is that God's judgment? Well, because when God leaves us to our own devices and removes his favour from our lives at our request, we only move further from his grace. We only embed ourselves in our rejection of his truth. We suffer the consequence of human wrongdoing, which is punishing in and of itself. And we grow deafer and deafer to his call to come back to him. And the hope of salvation grows ever fainter. Friends, I think this is a very realistic depiction of the world that we live in. When God gives humans over to themselves at our requests, to our sinful hearts, our shameful lusts, our depraved minds, that is a devastating scenario. It is a present judgment indeed. We suffer the consequences of our wrongdoing without a rescue, the hope of being restored into right relationship with God and being the objects of his mercy fades away. It is a present judgment indeed that points to a final one. And I think you have to admit this makes sense of our world. Let's just say you've done this accidentally. Have you ever flicked over on TV to one of those free-to-air channels like um, 72 or 93, I think, where they have TV home shopping on? Have you ever accidentally done that? Fat-free air fryers, wonderful steam cleaners that are going to solve all your earthly problems. The other day they were flogging this exercise bike. Um, I'm just going to do the... Pretending I'm riding a bike with my feet helps me get into the zone. Uh, It also has resistance bands, so now I've got everything working. Resistance bands, so you can do upper body exercises while your legs are whizzing away. And they have these remarkably good-looking, fit, ripped and tanned people using the machine while the salesman rambles on about it for 20 minutes. And I was looking at them thinking, you are very fit. But you didn't get fit by being on that machine, did you? And I can tell this because they hadn't broken a sweat and they hadn't run out of breath. In fact, they hadn't stopped smiling their perfect white smile after 20 minutes on this thing. You see, it was a false hope entirely. Now, I wonder if you think um, I gave you a false hope when I started. Remember, I started talking about hopeful and optimism. You look at verses 18 to 32 and it's a description of depraved humanity in general, The pagan world, if you like, it refers to they and them kind of out there, but I've included us with them, lumping us all together as one immoral, irreligious human conglomerate because it sounds less judgy. Nathan's going to show us next week that even if we think our school report card looks pretty good, compared to this description in verses 18 to 32, it probably isn't. So we've got no room for being judgmental. Isn't it true, friends? It's not our job to be judgmental. It's God's job to judge, and he will be thorough and just. But I started today using words like hopeful and optimistic, and you think, where are the hope and optimism? In verse 18 to 32, in that gloomy description of idolatry and immorality and judgment. Well, of course, friends, it's at the very beginning, isn't it? In verses 16 and 17, where a gospel hope is revealed. And if you haven't read these other verses with me, I I, I beseech you to read these along with me. Verses 16 and 17, where the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Doesn't it feel gloomy to read verse 18 when we read the wrath of God is being revealed except that the verse before has reminded us that the righteousness of God is also revealed. Not in human behaviour where we try to you know, lift ourselves up to an A-, minus, but in the gospel of his son. The gospel, the good news about Jesus that brings us salvation from judgment. The gospel that's accessed, let's try that again, that's accessed by faith or belief from first to last. In other words, it's always been accessible via faith. The salvation that's available to everyone who believes. Well, wonderful news. The gospel brings salvation to everyone who believes, whether that's the religiously devout Jew Chapter 3, the morally upright Gentile, chapter 2, the depraved Australian in this chapter. It's available to everyone who believes. The idolater at the back at Manly, the greedy person, the gossip, the slanderer, the heterosexually immoral, the homosexually immoral, the one who invents ways of doing evil and the one who encourages others to do the same. Whatever your background, friend, whatever your backstory, the gospel that centers on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is optimistic because it's available to everyone who believes. It will challenge you. It will shape and reshape you, sometimes painfully. It will change you, no doubt. But it also saves everyone who believes. And so, friends, if you're here today, I want you to know you're welcome, whatever your backstory is, and I would ask you to apply your mind and your spirit to study it with us. And if you have believed this gospel, so Christian people, the answer for you is not to judge the people of the world in their idolatry and their immorality, for we are no better, are we? The answer is to share Paul's confidence in the gospel, to repeat after him, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. God has made himself clear in creation. We universally reject that testimony. We worship created things instead. We add immorality to our idolatry and we invent ways of doing evil. We might think that our scorecard is an A- minus at best, but really it's a glowing red F. We want nothing to do with God and when he gives us what we want, it goes even worse for us and yet he cannot help himself, it seems to me. He cannot leave us without hope, without a lifeline, without a witness to himself, without the prospect of rescue. And so friends, join with the Apostle Paul in saying, I am not ashamed of this gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. going to finish our time by having a time of reflection and I've just got five questions that you might like to think through um, with some potential responses depending on where this passage really lands for you there they are do I need to read them or can you read them for yourself first person to answer decides it for everyone I read them okay didn't guess that all right um, you might go as a reflection can I say with Paul 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel, then you, you pray to God and ask him for courage to share his confidence. Ask yourself the question, are there idols that are jostling for position with my creator in my heart? Ask God to help you identify these things. Ask yourself the question, are there places where I, as a Christian, envious, slanderous, deceitful, lustful, etc.? That's the case, repent of these things. Ask yourself the question, how would I love and live differently if I worshipped and served my creator rather than created things, even good created things, and pray that God would help you to worship him alone? And then ask yourself the question, have I truly believed the gospel of his son that brings salvation? Sorry about the typos. And then praise God for the good news and the salvation it brings. We've got a couple of minutes to do that and then um, I invite you to pray in the quietness of your own heart and then I'll close in a closing prayer at the end. So let's have some quiet time.